chapter 5, I embark upon a business career. The prospect of a flying navy. The coming of the new age and how we plan to exploit it to our advantage. We begin to raise capital. Next morning as I sat at my breakfast, into the tap room came St. Audrin. He wore a blue nankeen housecoat to his ankles, a Chinese brocade cap, and oriental slippers, making him look for all the world like some successful mogul, returned home with his fortune and bearing not a scrap of similarity to the mercenary rogue of his own description. His demeanour was that of an amiable English buck, some overbred but not undereducated frequenter of whites or goose trees, a crony of the Prince Regent. I had met this type and its colonial imitators before and had learned not to underestimate the English dandy. The dandyism, at its best, pretended a bored and foolish foppery which disguised sharp wit and resolute courage. While I was in America, I had heard them dubbed macaronis on account of their taste for exaggerated foreign fashions, and even Washington had had a touch of the style. So here he came, with a hint of lavender and rose water, into the tap room, where Frau Schuster served hot chocolate, cheese, ham, sausages, boiled eggs, gingerbread, and anything else one desired. St. Audrin had the good manners to refrain from asking for one of those dishes with which the English ensure the bad temper of their fighting men, in much the same way as berserker northmen were given strong mead, or certain Polynesian tribesmen are said to be insulted and humiliated by their wives on the eve and morning of an important battle. The English, I now know, eat mashed fish and deviled sheep's hearts to guarantee a bad digestion and consequent irritability. It is their abominable cooking which has given them half the world as their empire. My friend was a veritable encyclopedia of little bows, graces and gestures. A smile here, a brace of nods to myself and Schuster. A few legs made in the general direction of a skirt or a mop cap, and then, seated across from me on my right, he praised Herr Schuster's militaria, expressing interest in the copper plate, which Ulrika, it emerged, had watercoloured. Upon the panelled walls, and asking if the landscapes were like the trophies of specific memories, he listened carefully with half-bent head as my old sergeant listed the scenes and his own recollections of them. St. Audrin was impressed, he said, by the wide extent of this veteran's travels. He smiled gently. Most Veldensteiners seem to feel little imperative to go beyond their own borders, perhaps because they know already that the rest of the world is unquestionably less perfect. One thing perfection brings her, Chevalier, said Schuster readily, and that's boredom. To grow up in the certain knowledge one shall never know serious threat, nor yet much discomfort, or has its own innovating influence. We Muhrenbergers send our sons abroad as often and as soon as we can. Similarly, our daughters are generally given the better education. 
We're proud of our traditions, but there's danger and complacency, and we seek to avoid decadence as best we can. Happily, since our population's constantly replenished from abroad, we keep our stock pretty healthy, while many Muranburgers remain in the service of foreign nations. Then there's our standing army, which is of considerable strength and resources. While it's kept entirely for our defence, it's made up of men like myself, who have experienced war in all its evil forms, and would not have him foul our own homes. Yet we never involve ourselves in the struggles of others, thus no potential enemy ever considers it economical to attack us. At the same time, they know they need fear nothing from us, so long as they're left in peace. Uh, truly the triumph of reason, said I, half jesting. A state run upon such rational principles shows an example to the whole world, said the Chevalier, Yet one wonders by why her example is not followed, or by England, say. Well, I believe it's a question of acreage, sir, I proposed. Waldenstein's an ideal state because she's an ideal size. Once a nation grows to the size of my native Saxony, her proportions dictate not merely the use of her resources, but also her method of administration and so forth. Kings and governments look upon expansive conquest as a means of increasing both wealth and security. But the larger their domain, the more problematical are their decisions, for this item must be balanced against that, one's part at one party's interests against another. And all this involves a plethora of promises and compromises. The small state need hardly consider compromise at all, and debate is therefore more welcome, while solutions are sooner arrived at. So you would recommend the breaking of large states into several smaller ones, a general reduction of empires? St. Audrin shook his head as his chocolate cup went down on his saucer with a rattle. It would mean the end of our civilization. It would mean the end of these bloody struggles for territory, said Schuster. But it will never happen, said I. There's no suitable rhetoric, no vainglorious posture, no material justification for the backward step. And since progress, the quest for justice and reason, is identified in all minds with the steady gaining of territory, we shall forever be in the position of knowing the solution, and aware that while our race follows its present logical methods, it can never solve its problems. Therefore, half at least of its hideous injustices will continue to be perpetuated, while colonial conquest is celebrated, and we vie, for, vie with one another to paint as much of the map in our own colours. Look at what happens in America. Having rid themselves of imperial rule, the Republicans already spread the rule of might by their gun and sword throughout the Indian nations. A children's parlour game in which each decision results somewhere in the death of thousands and the enslavement of millions. And moreover, while we continue to judge ourselves in terms of our power, the lot of woman will remain as miserable as ever. Ha! cried St. Audrin in delight. Wollstonecraftism! Then his face clouded, and he was no doubt thinking of his native heaths. Not only could you convince no one in England of the virtue of your arguments, sir, he said with a sigh, raising from his chair, but if you attempt to put it into action, as they did in Scotland fifty years ago, you're called traitor, rebel, and worse. Your people are tortured and executed. At best, they're driven into exile, while, as for the woman, sir, they're worse treated than ever. Women and children are hounded like game by brutal soldiery, raped and mutilated, killed, allowed to starve, and your very houses are burned to the ground. 
I hold no brief for the Stuart cause, and Charles Edward's name will forever in my mind be linked with Northumberland's. Fine words cannot fight a battle. A mere wish for kingship is not an ideal. They were piled, those corpses, one upon the other at Culloden, and still they ran, unarmed little boys, towards the English guns. Prince Charlie's as much to blame for their deaths as anyone. During this passion, his drawling manner fled him completely, and instead he pronounced his German with the fierce, rolling accents of Hibernia, and then he sank back in apology, fanned his face with one elongated mandarin sleeve, flourished his hand and smiled. Pray forgive me, a self-deprecating gesture to the ladies, an inclination of his head towards us. Then the familiar expression was resumed, and he was saying, Blood! But the large shall ever feed upon the small, the strong upon the weak, and we must not quarrel with our Lord's will, nor indeed with his majesty. There was some trace of a sing-song in his tone, as if he mocked some childhood guide. He smiled suddenly and put a piece of cheese into his mouth. "'Tis a pretty day,' said he. "'And what of your aerial ship, her chevalier? Shall you fly her this afternoon?' I was eager for a taste of the upper atmosphere, for it would distract me, possibly help maintain the objectiveness I hoped for, and which was already threatened by images of her beauty coming unbidden to my mind's eye. All the whorehouse had done, as I might have realised had I not still floundered between the dictates of mind and senses, was to alert my body to the possibility of real pleasure of the profound satisfaction which I had known in just those minutes of Labusa's company. I still believed it would be more wonderful to spend an hour with her than to be all night amongst the artful whores of Mrs. Sliney's. And then, there I had already begun to logic myself back into a trap when St. Audrin said, This morning I'll assure, ensure the civic authority has no objection. By two o'clock this afternoon I shall have my Montgolfier on the little field, you know it, the public garden outside the west wall, by the Morozhny gate, and be ready to make a demonstration by means of a tethered ascent. And thus he rescued me from morbid self-absorption. Mürnberg shall see our craft rise into the air, said St. Audrin, with an elegant sweep of his long hand and so shall we establish our credentials as aerial navigators in the popular mind. If our reception seems generally favourable, then we shall surely find it an easy matter to interest the wealthiest citizens in the prospect of a company formed to build a larger vessel. Her chevalier, said I, in some amusement, aren't you assuming some manner of agreement between us which has not yet been made? He looked surprised, rocked back in his chair and fingered his jaw. Blood, sir! I'd thought us partners, and that your wish to try out the ship was demonstration of the fact. No hands been shaken on it, no terms debated. True, sir. Well, you know my proposals, I think. I recall what you told me of your own schemes at the Hackmesser Pass. And on the stairs last night? A couple of words, sir. I proposed an alliance. Well, it's true, you did. So, naturally, I assumed... I laughed openly. By God, St. Audrin, I can see the machinery of your tricks, yet still they succeed. And I admit I'd considered throwing in with you before last night, so let's shake a hand on it hard and fast. The ritual was completed, and he beamed. Your literary skills are required first, Captain. 
We need a handbill to distribute from the air. New territories, gold, wealth of all sorts to be easily gathered. He frowned. But whether we should make reference to your secret charts as yet, I'm not sure. And would it be deemed heresy to mention the Grail? Hold your horses, sir, I cried. What's this? It's all news to me. The Von Beck family legend, sir. Money in one's purse where this sort of venture is attempted. And the respectability of the Von Beck name, of course, well known in Mirrenberg, as you're aware. A sober name, sir, and a pious one. Upright to a fault, you might say. Sir, said I. He grinned frankly at me. Well, sir? Do I understand you wish me to exploit my family name? St. Audrin, you ask too much. And as for that damned legend... Being damned, no honours lost if you make of it. Hmm, well that's true. I hesitated. No need at all to consider that part of the business now, he said generously. Why not simply add a poetic flourish to the handbills and we'll see how we fare. Well, there was nothing to lose from that suggestion, so I agreed. St. Audrin was on his way about the town as soon as he was properly and perfectly attired, and I remained at the martyred priest drafting out advertisements which we should in good time scatter as messengers from the sky. I was not required to be specific. Choosing between Zeus and Jupiter as titular drivers of our flying chariot took up more than an hour, and finally I rejected both and decided upon Donnan as most apt for Nordic climbs though I believe Svedavian gods were, a still, were of a still grimmer Slavic persuasion and had names like Grak or Kog. Sergeant Schuster took an interest. He asked if I'd ever witnessed the Parisian balloon flights, and I was bound to admit that I had missed them all, though, of course, other balloons had been used strategically during the conflict. He himself had seen a vessel in flight only once, he said. It was meant to go from Salzburg to Basel, but the wind had changed. He heard the aeronauts were eventually found in the Bulgar Mountains, though every scrap of the balloon's bright silk had been stolen by brigands, and the aeronauts themselves were shivering, mother naked in their basket. An abnormal knowledge of the paths of the wind, greater than any seaborne navigators, must be something of a necessity, he said. I agreed that it seemed likely, but St. Audrin apparently had methods of steering as yet untried. I held up his notes. The large ship he plans will have appropriate mechanisms. I realised I was doubtless already acting as a megaphone for the British swindler. I had no means of telling how much the Chevalier drew the long bow, and would have to bide my time before I found out. Moreover, I could not say much abroad of St. Audrin's schemes lest I betray his confidence. So I held my tongue. Sergeant Schuster, however, had plainly noticed something odd in my manner, and went on to talk about the fears expressed in a Viennese, Viennese journal that a French flying army might at any time attack the city. In those days, of course, the French were thought to be masters of the air, and nobody had any clear notion of how such a fleet could be built, and, if built, how it might be resisted. It occurred to me that St. Audrin and I would do well to play upon that misconception. What else would make a mortal Mirrenberg stronger still but the construction of a flotilla of aerial men-o'-war? St. Audrin, returning from the Staatshaus in some elation, displayed his license, a mixture of printing, ornamental script, decoration, 
in five colours including gold, and several seals and ribbons. That was our permission to hold our demonstration. Now, he said, we would have to canvas prominent burghers and drum up a popular crowd besides. The time seemed too short. Uh, the time seemed too short, I said. No, said St. Audrin, we have brushes and ink. A brief notice is always best on a wall. Paint this, Von Beck, if you will. And he writes with a flourish in large letters. Littlefield today, airship ascent, 3pm, as many times as you can. Within an hour, I had a stiff wrist and a hundred posters. St. Audrin was long since gone to make all arrangements. It was noon. Sergeant Schuster's Martha had boiled us up a huge pot of paste. Armed with this and the bills, we attacked every blank wall we could find in Muremberg. Church, school and public building, none was safe from us. Then it was thirty minutes past one o'clock, and urchins followed us here and there while large crowds were assembling in our wake. I was mightily pleased at the attention. St. Audrin was already at the little field, and as soon as our work was finished we raced to meet him. The day was passing in a whirl. If only, I thought, the same pace could be maintained for a month or so, then I would be the more confident of Labussa ceasing to tempt my thoughts. This pining was repugnant to me. It was demeaning. I was like a schoolgirl panting after the first man to kiss her lips, ready to give up honour, dignity, ambition, and furtherance of a senseless passion. It should not be so. Then we were off, up the wide Mladotta steps into Grunegasse, Schuster and me running like boys on holiday, taking the shortest route through the covered alleys, lanes and passages to reach the west gate, the Bull's Gate of Alaric III, the Morozhny Gate, and out through evergreens down a long grassy slope under a wonderful hazy winter sun, misty with melting snow, to where a monstrous brazier burned, copper and iron, red as rubies giving forth a blast of smoke and flame like the voice of Siegfried's dragon. Two lads in wool coats and sheepskin hats with mittens on their hands held the white brass hoop of the balloon's neck close to the hot air while the silk rippled and bubbled and slowly filled. Up behind us the walls were already crowded with every class of townsfolk. Some few had spyglasses, and these were passed swiftly from eye to eye. Used to addressing such gatherings, but not used to being observed like an ape at a fair, I became embarrassed, and wondered if I should make a speech, or at the very least salute, salute the crowd. But this, I suppose, would have been in poor taste, for the balloon was the chief performer, and St. Audrin her keeper, her trainer. The Scotchman's full attention was upon the filling up of the vessel with hot air. Distant cries issued from the crowd, doubtless expressing its curiosity, asking questions. A few little boys and their dogs dared come closer, but were sternly waved back by a dignified St. Audrin. On the far side of the growing canopy, and attached by stout bell ropes, was an ornamental wooden and wicker car, gilded, tasseled, a trifle on the threadbare side, with head, wings and tail of some fabulous creature. This was the cockatrice, no doubt, which my friend saw flying over Prague. To me, it resembled a griffin, more. It was brightly painted, if chips here and there, and resembled the kind of thing Indian princes used to decorate their shrines, or place upon the backs of their ceremonial elephants.
As the balloon took shape, St. Audrin gestured for Schuster and myself to join him. I am much impressed, gentlemen, by your crowd-gathering skills, he said cheerfully, as he took a hefty pair of bellows to the brazier and made it roar with an intensity which seemed to me unnecessary, but which pleased the audience. They clapped and whistled, sending little clouds of steamy breath into the cold air. The sky seemed sharp blue and with no hint of snow. Nearby was St. Audrin's emptied cart. His mules cropped the lawn. Two members of Mirrenberg's militia stood by, guarding the cart, fingering their muskets and asking bored, unsophisticated questions. One of these guards, a confirmed and noisy atheist, discoursed on how the wind, which progressed at different speeds according to the height one achieved, must eventually be charted so that we should be able to move along its courses, much as we presently moved on highways. His main theme, however, was on the subject of heaven and how the airship would not find it, thus revealing as balderdash the religious tyranny to which our race had been subject for nigh twenty centuries. That's why the church wishes to abolish such vessels, he confided. The canopy bulged and was restless as the hot air slowly filled it. The Charlier, St. Audrin said, was easier to fill and to fly, but the inflammable air, the hydrogen gas, which lifted her, was also very dangerous and liable to ignite at a spark. The canopy lurched upright and ropes tightened on the griffin. The crowd, amongst its scientists and bureaucrats, which stood upon the wall, gave a great cheer whenever it seemed the silk, the silk filled another significant inch or two. All we were missing was a municipal orchestra and a few words from the mayor. Meanwhile, the wall continued to be crammed at its top and at its feet with all manner of folk. From well-to-do ladies in bonnets and crinolines to barge captains in their oilskins. All the rivermen had arrived together, drunk and pretending they were taking an official holiday, each with at least one bottle, one stone bottle of gin or aquavit upon his person. The militia stared coolly at the bargees as if challenging them to do anything even mildly destructive. The rivermen all removed their hats at once and leaned dutifully towards the growing balloon, pursing their lips and widening their eyes in so comical a display that even St. Audrin was forced to laugh at them. He looked up at his balloon, cocked his head on one side, squinted, ran his hand across the tightening silk, and meanwhile pumped furiously with his remaining arm at his bellows, forcing the hot air into the envelope until his long face cleared in relief. Either a leak he suspected was not there, or it was still too small to be of much significance. Still the crowd grew bigger. I began to think entertainment must be hard to come by in Muirenberg. I recognised half the whores from Mrs. Sliney's, looking more like gentlewomen of the beau monde, in beaver hats and fine shawls, and not generally seen for what they were, save by certain embarrassed gentlemen who shook their heads when their wives inquired, after this unusually large group of single women. Then, with a lurch, the canopy was up to full height, rising swiftly to halt suddenly and strain on her tethering rope, with the green, gold, red, blue and white gondola swaying below like a captured beast from mythology.
St. Odrin was quick with his ropes, testing each one to ensure it was securely anchored, bowing to the good-humoured spectators like some circus lion tamer who had accomplished a particularly daring trick. The canopy rose high above my head, and I, like the people on the walls, gasped in awe. I had never realised the thing could be so huge. It was the size of a building, and it shone green and gold and scarlet in the bright winter light. I felt I was witnessing an authentic miracle. Suddenly I had a profound respect for St. Odrin, who no longer seemed a charming rogue, but an engineer of genius, since few had ever learned the techniques of the unfortunate Montgolfiers, one of whom was now dead while the other continued to enjoy the disfavour of a revolutionary government identifying him with the king who had patronised him. Secondly, I knew some measure of pride in my native land and its contribution to this miracle. The Montgolfiers always acknowledged the writings of Albert of Saxony, the 14th century monk whose treatise on flight inspired them to begin their own experiments. Albert, so family legend ran, was an ancestor to the von Becks. Well, now St. Odrin was on the move, lifting his tall hat in recognition of the crowd's applause, bowing this way and that, checking his machine in all its details, testing the pegs to which a single thick coil of rope were attached. Then he signed to me. There was room for at least four in the gondola, but Schuster would not be tempted. He hung back, a look of pale terror on his little face. So I smiled, clapped him on the shoulder and joined St. Audrin at the rope ladder we must climb. The Scotchman was chuckling and full of himself. I shook his hand enthusiastically. Overhead the silk blazed and strained. Donan's chariot must fly to greet tomorrow's dawn. St. Audrin went up first, moving rapidly as the ladder swayed. I imitated him more self-consciously, attempting to keep at least a semblance of dignified balance as I followed him into the car, with which within resembled a large rowing boat. The vessel itself, once boarded, was surprisingly steady. One might hardly have been airborne at all. There was a large picnic hamper fixed under a seat, books and a glass box, scientific instruments and all manner of blankets, quilts, clothing, weapons, Indeed, what was probably the entire contents of his wagon all carefully stowed. St. Audrin leaned out as I walked to the far side to help balance the car. The stern was equipped with a large oar, and there were monstrous bellows too, also a ship's anchor giving the whole contraption a parodically nautical appearance. St. Audrin cried, Let go! to the lads below, and I sensed a tiny jerk but no sensation of flying, so I assumed we were not yet ascending. It was only when I stepped to peer over the side, I saw the ground rushing away below at terrific speed, that I realised we were leaving Earth behind. I could not hold back my exclamation. My stomach spun like a treadmill and I was close to vomiting. Then I recovered enough to watch. Within a minute or two, when the balloon was some... 300 feet into the air, I could look down upon the walls and places of Mirrenberg and see little white faces all staring upwards. It was possible to imagine the power one would feel should one be in command of the large vessel St. Audrin imagined, with mounted cannon and a brave crew one could achieve more than any army. 
I began to think in terms of aerial piracy. An entire city might be taken as the bandits of the high seas once took single galleons. Base though the emotion was, there was no denying I felt at least a demigod as we listened to the tiny voices of the crowd cheering while we were borne upwards, standing as it were upon a balcony in a palace of the skies. One moment I was Mercury, the next I was Blackbeard. There could be no defence at all against a navy able to anchor overhead and rain grenades or whole barrels of gunpowder upon the rooftops. Under the leadership of some new Attila, some purifying scourge which came not from the east but from the regions of heaven itself, a world revolution might indeed be possible. Here was an instrument of relentless justice and infinite destruction. My recollection suggests that my ascent, upon 300 feet of tethering bell rope by aerial ship, was the first moment I truly realised the world had embarked upon a radical new course in which mankind's theories and dreams could now be made reality. Not by philosophical persuasion or example, but by mechanical means. We were at the threshold of a millennium, whereby we should steadily increase our mastery of the natural world, whether and all the elements would eventually come under our control, so too should we master our own sensibilities by the power of volcanic mesmerism, if not by the power of our wills. Near drunk on all this, I waved again to the little upturned heads, St. Audrin began to unfurl flags here and there like a sideshow conjurer. A reader might reflect upon the irony of my situation at that moment. There was I, a veritable king of the air, admired by a crowd which would not be so impressed had Frederick of Prussia himself risen from death and come a-visiting, borne up it seemed by distant cheers from below, and swelling with unearned pride, in spite of being naught but a passenger supported upon a platform hanging from no more than a few yards of silk, a little hot air, and, of most significance, the application of a scientific theory some four hundred years old, preening and strutting and symbolising, for myself at any rate, prospective conquest, not of other nations, but of the world of intellect and spirit, while, at the same moment, looking into the immediate future, I foresaw a treasure in gold and silver coin, which must surely be the tribute paid to us, the prophets and profiteers, of this quintessential monument to a dawning age of science. Yet, planning a flim-flam, a confidence trick, a share bubble of the lowest mediocrity. At last it seemed I discovered the secret of financial success, of retaining authentic idealism while, without apparent contradiction, turning a handsome gain. The future was not to be Rousseau's natural kingdom, nor yet Paine's utopia after all. It was to be the creation of men who would labour in iron foundries to give flesh to the dreams of Arkwright, Smeaton, Watts, Trevethick and other engineers who'd become to the 19th century what Voltaire, Burke and Kant had been to the, our 18th. It was at this point I thought I'd ask my elated companion when we might expect to return to Earth. The Chevalier scratched his head, looked to the horizon, wet a finger and hold it to the wind. 
crossing rapidly to the side of the gondola, swayed suddenly and set the whole vessel to rocking, apologised as I clung to a rope to stay upright, stared at the darkening sky, studied the western mountains, stroked at his chin, frowned upon his watch, patted his neckcloth, tapped a foot on the boards of the vessel's bouncing floor and shrugged. What depends, Captain, upon the weather? It seemed we would have to wait for the air to cool. Then we should slowly descend. The Chevalier explained in some embarrassment that they were that there were perfectly accurate means of controlling the ship, but for this exhibition he did not have time to install every piece of equipment normally utilised. He would explain, he promised, as soon as we were on the globe's surface once again. Thus I witnessed from that gondola a magnificent sunset. The stars grew bright and clear in the darkening sky. The cold wind brought out brought the sharp scents of snow, and inch by inch, it seemed, our vessel gradually dropped earthward. At last we clambered from our basket to be greeted by Sergeant Schuster, together with two shivering boys of about ten years, their mangy poodle, the resentful militiaman, an old woman wanting to sell us a charm against, she said, vultures, and a thin, long-nosed clerk from the partnership, he said, of Hohenheim, Plesner, and Pulaski. We're damn near frozen, sir, said the chevalier, rubbing at his hands. Is your business so urgent? We're advocates, sir, said the clerk, and when the chevalier offered him a blank look, a legal practice, sir, the law, you know, we are lawyers. Aha! With an aggressive movement, St. Audrin accepted a card and squinted at it hard in the light from the brazier, which, for, their, for our own comfort, the militia had maintained. Too dark to read. Bailiffs, eh? Leave it with us. Ten o'clock tomorrow morning, sir, said the puzzled clerk. Something to your advantage, I believe. Advantage, hmm? The tall chevalier's manner changed suddenly, and he put one arm around my shoulders, the other around Schuster, and stared up at Muremberg's exquisite silhouette. The moon was by this time quite high. He murmured to me, A bite, I'm certain. Say nothing. Then, more loudly, he added, Come, friends, we'll celebrate our success with wine. From the darkness, the clerk wailed his bafflement. Shall you be there, sir? The chevalier paused. He was grand, even haughty. Very well, tomorrow, but it must be eleven, he spoke as if an ill-bred child. Eleven, sir. Yes, sir. Behind us, the aerial ship, guarded now only by the boys, swayed, creaked, and sighed, its canopy-forming bumps, distortions, and ripples as the air slowly escaped. "'Tis a question of weights and counterbalances,' said St. Audrin, of simple ballast, too. In a larger vessel, or one with a metal gondola, for instance, are the braziers carried, which is damped until the need for hot air arises, to keep one aloft, you understand. But it did not seem wise to introduce such an instrument today. One goes up heavy, using ballast to lighten, and comes down cold. What do you think, Von Beck? Did you enjoy the adventure? Are you with me? I've already given you my hand, sir, but I'm still curious as to how you believe I'll be handy to your enterprise. Handy? Dim, man. You're essential. Who would give a Scottish soldier cash before the job's completed? But a Saxon? A Von Beck? Ah, that's a different tale. 
We returned to the warmth of the martyred priest, and when Sergeant Schuster had gone off to explain his long and inconvenient absence to his wife, we sat together in the ingle nook, smoking good, cool church wardens and toasting our boots against the fire dog, knowing something close to contentment as we continued to discuss the coming of the new age and how best we might enrich ourselves by it. Then we went to our suppers and immediately thereafter to our beds. For the first few hours I slept undisturbed, only waking just before dawn, hearing a noise from Ladotta Square outside my window. I rose and turned down the lamp I had left burning, so that I might clearly look through the glass upon deserted, flagging cobbles and statuary. Waning moonlight presented yet another aspect of Mirrenberg. Two figures stepped rapidly from the eastern corner to the western. Both men wore swords and held scabbards against their thighs as they walked in the manner of soldiers. The pair doubtless went to duel, almost certainly near the Redotta Bridge which spans the Rat. It was the traditional meeting ground for such encounters. I envied them the simplicity of their conflict which would be concluded in an hour or two without appeal. A little snow danced against my window and the thin light came swaggering up the sky from behind a black line of steeples and eccentric roofs. A cold wind entered the room and I hastened back to bed to lie for a while in a reverie of melancholy and dramatic rhetoric. The consequences of my own vanity. How I longed to see my labusa again. At last, impatient with this, I was up to the water bowl and splashing hastily before dragging on my clothing and homing like a cat for the warmth of the kitchen stove below. Disconcerting the maids and Frau Schuster, who would not usually expect to see me for another two hours, I retreated into a quiet corner with a cup of warm milk and brandy, claiming it was a headache which affected me. Watching those hard-working people go about their business, preparing stoves, food, beverages, cleaning all that must be cleaned in a thriving hostelry, drawing up inventories, planning what must be brought, and doing all with a fair grace, even cheerfully, I felt divorced from ordinary life and jealous of their apparent tranquillity. I had spent my youth and manhood largely in the service of enlightened causes, save for my Russian years, and this devotion to politics, to campaigns and strategies, to the general warfare, had left me in some ways ill-prepared, even naive when it came to viewing the concerns which these women, for instance, took for granted. There was an attraction in grand designs, for they frequently allowed us to ignore the daily matters of domestic drama which surrounded us. I imagined myself Ulrika Schuster, that friendly, good-hearted girl. If I were she, would I not, by her age, already have felt half my current disappointments and be expressing almost none of the resentment which I, by sex and position, brought up to take power for granted, currently suffered? This observation, while improving my moral state, did very little for my pain. When St. Odrin came down, he was dressed like a forester or a country gentleman, in hunting green, with a brown waistcoat and top-turned riding boots, a costume my father might have worn to visit the pastor on a weekday. And indeed, the Chevalier wore his outfit, he said, in order to create an impression of himself as an unostentatious aristocrat, 
someone with land wealth. He had the actor's gift of responding accurately to whatever disguise he adopted. He smiled at my lifted eyebrow. I am a carpenter and a smith who must be induced to it. I have a carpenter and a smith who must be induced to allow me credit. They would supply a landsman what they'd refuse point blank to a popinjay in dandy's threads. So the Von Beck name shan't be used yet? Used, he said, but not abused, and he winked. I presume you shall not take me with you. He shook his head. You are needed, my friend, for the prospectus. It must be written in a properly educated manner. He drew some folded documents from his tail pocket. Here are all the saliencies of my aerial man of war. Make her a merchant craft instead. Put a literary and fanciful touch to her particulars while I'm out. Then meet me at the lawyer's in Königstrasse at eleven. You require the whole prospectus by then? I'd be obliged, I. He drank a rapid tot of hot grog to prepare him for the weather outside, and then stood up, plucking his heavy cloak and his stick, his gloves and wide-brimmed hat from the bench beside him. I'll take it to the printer this afternoon. By tomorrow you'll be ready to begin. Wear whatever you fancy for yourself. You have an old name, which can always carry the newest fashion. Those of us with shop new names must endeavour by our waistcoats to suggest antiquity. And with a wink he was gone out into the awakening street. Having paid my respects to Sergeant Schuster, I returned up the stairs, passing Ulrika coming down. She greeted me pleasantly and asked if I intended to stay in my rooms that morning. And when I told her I'd be writing there, she said she would light the stove in my little parlour. It was too cold, she said, for thinking and shivering at the same time. I was touched by her thoughtfulness. I wondered how I should have fared in Mirrenberg had I arrived there without friends and my obsession still upon me. Soon, in the easy warmth of my parlour, I had composed the following. An Aerial Expedition the latest intelligence of a modern Columbus. But recently reported in the English press the return of a remarkable aeronautical navigator, Le Chevalier Colin James Charles Gordon Cowie Le Corky St. Audrin, nobleman of Scotland and Luxembourg, lately in the service of the Emperor Frederick of Prussia, was celebrated with great rejoicing in London and Edinburgh after the Chevalier's absence of nearly a year aboard his aerial schooner, the Danos. In his address to the Royal Exploration Society at Greenwich, the Chevalier spoke of new lands discovered beyond the Antarctic continent and of the astonishing variety of creatures and peoples he had found there. And at the end of his address he displayed gems of unique size and purity, these were subsequently loaned to the Crown agents, who are yet attempting to assess their monetary value, since nothing of their like has ever been seen before. The Chevalier de St. Audrin, who was both a hero of the East Indian campaigns and a knight of St. Leopold, informed the Society of his intention to found an aerial navigation company, which would equip a larger vessel to journey by air to the newly discovered regions, and return with examples of both flora and fauna together, with 
further examples of those precious minerals which he himself saw in considerable quantities. Venality of the English Parliament This noble scheme has been threatened, however, due to the English government insisting, in spite of considerable public outcry, that the Crown receive half of any cargo so discovered. Subsequently, the Chevalier de Saint-Audrin departed in his vessel from England, and it is rumoured that he journeyed to his estates in Africa, which may be only reached from the air. Intention of his visit to Muranberg On the eve of his departure, the Chevalier expressed his hope of meeting more confidence and less greed amongst the continental nations. He expressed the intention of visiting the enlightened city of Muranberg, which is the capital of Weldenstein, whose people are famous for their generosity and positive curiosity. There, he would solicit interest in his newly formed Para-Antarctical Aerial Navigation Company. I will admit I was singularly proud of my literary invention. For the past few years I had written nothing but speeches, and their high-toned rhetoric, it now seemed to me, was better suited for the form of commercial advertisements. In this time of revolution and discord, I went on to say, it was wise for men of property to invest their capital in more distant lands, not yet settled by civilised peoples with radical notions. The Chevalier saint Audrin possessed charts, made by himself and other explorers, of lands as yet unmarked upon the familiar globe. It was his intention to have built a great aerial frigate, armed with the latest in weaponry, and with a complement of seasoned veterans of good character, and thus equipped, embark for these lands, claiming them, claiming them in the name of the company or any nation which should commission him. Any commissioning body or individual should have the honour of assuring one of the noblest ventures in modern times, and moreover, be enriched by a profit many degrees greater than the original investment. I went on in this vein for a while, making reference to the drawings, which were excellently done, of the projected frigate herself, which would consist of an oval-shaped canopy with a wooden hull, and upon this would be mounted an assemblage of sails and wind oars, as well as various forms of ballast. The present director of the company was none other than Ritter Monfred Manfred von Beck, of that great and noble Saxon family, whose name had been associated for many centuries with ventures of only the most reliable stability and provenance. The Ritter's experiences in France, where he stood against Robespierre and defied the mob in his valiant defence of the king and his family, were now common currency, I wrote. These events impressed upon the Ritter von Beck. The urgent need for fresh colonies abroad where the mistakes of the past could not be repeated. To ascertain himself of the Chevalier St. Audrin's absolute integrity, he himself accompanied the explorer on his most recent voyage to the idyllic territory, free of disease and out discord of any kind, which St. Audrin had named Quasi-Africa. The drawings and the figures were the work of Ritter's own hand and displayed the wonderful tropical world, its riches and its fruits, together with its natives who were gentle and friendly, and whose simple costumes included headdress and harness of emeralds, 
sapphires and diamonds which they dug from the floor of a certain valley not two miles from their capital town. As for vegetation and beasts, these consisted of many edible fruits and vegetables and various animals, most of which were not dangerous. The largest was a kind of ostrich with multicoloured plumage used for ploughing and for pulling carriages by the natives, as well as a kind of ocelot whose coat resembled that of an ermine, though it was of a pinker cast. In danger of carrying myself away by these flights of fancy, I forced myself to stop and, hearing the cathedral clock strike ten, rolled up my best copies, tied them with a ribbon, drew on my topcoat and was off to the lawyers via Radoskia Avenue, where I made inquiries at a tailor's after a new suit of clothes, so impressed had I become by the promises of my own prospectus. Early at Messrs. Hohenheim, Plesner and Pulaski, I was shown into a waiting room, lit by a large bay window with a view of the Felfnesalli, busy and wide. Below and beyond it, the river was so crammed with the morning's traffic, the water was hardly visible. The room was sparsely furnished, containing a set of high-backed, uncomfortable chairs, a map of Muirenberg on the wall, a long, brightly polished bench, an ornamental stove in black and blue tiles, giving off a parsimonious warmth, and a framed testimonial that in the year 1732, Isaac Hohenheim, passed with honours the high examination of the Royal Veldenstein Legal Council. The room smelled of beeswax and old parchment. The firm was a rich one, doubtless with aristocratic clients. There was a Turkish carpet on the floor. The uniformed beadle asked if there was anything I required while I waited. I told him there was nothing. I was content to breathe this wealthy dust for a while. Soon the beadle was back, ushering my partner into the room. St. Audrin was very much the busy owner of estates come reluctantly into town on business. He displayed the suggestion of a wink to me as he handed his outer garments to the servant, hovering in the shadow of the beadle's worsted and braid. Another minute while he went through my handiwork, praising, grunting, considering a phrase, and then the beadle was back and we were on the move again through panelled passages, past libraries of mysterious books and offices where perched clerks at high stools and desks, like so many captive flamingos, quills squeaking on vellum, until we came to a great cabin, a throne room of a prince of law who had a circular window set near the roof. Through this window a massive sunbeam entered, piercing the ever-present dust and falling at last upon the bust of some 17th century lawmaker in a fluted wig and a gown so trimmed with stonework lace I thought it must surely crack at a touch. His white, unsmiling face was at odds with all his frippery, making it seem someone had played a practical joke upon him and dressed him in his costume while he slept. He seemed, however, sublimely unconscious of the deception. From the room's far shadows now stalked a figure whose face not only bore a striking resemblance to the elaborate bust, but was almost as pale. He was in cream-coloured silk, only the bright eyes, clear and without expression, had colour. The thick lips moved ponderously to utter a 
Good morning, gentlemen, and then to introduce himself as her doctor lawyer Hohenheim Plessner, junior partner, and sixty if a day, and to ask our names. We bowed, announced our titles, and took his proffered chairs in front of his desk as he moved to a seat which had doubtless shaped his body over most of his life. I am, gentlemen, representing a client, and the matter requires your assurance of complete discretion before we continue. He fluffed and patted at his cravat while he spoke, and while he folded his hands to listen, he fixed the speaker with unblinking turquoise eyes which, on their own merit, must have won him the majority of his cases. We gave him our word on our silence. Satisfied, he picked up a folder to consult while he continued his deliberate discourse. My client's a person of quality, a resplendent of this city. For reasons which cannot as yet be divulged, my client wishes to commission your aerial ship. Holy commission her, do you mean, sir? said St. Audrin, in some surprise. The existing ship? The existing ship, sir. Sir, we plan to build a better, more sophisticated vessel. Well, I shall inform my client, sir. Thank you. Well, then, St. Audrin frowned. Which ship do we discuss? Either, sir. I believe that to be immaterial in this particular case. Well, a great deal of money is required to equip her, said St. Audrin. I am able to inform you that money shall be forthcoming, as much as is appropriate. I could tell that the lawyer was anxious not to make large promises to us, but it was also clear that his client was not troubled by any shortage of gold. Both of us could scarcely contain our greed. Our scheme was progressing more swiftly and smoother than we had dared to hope. Are we to know anything else of your client, sir? asked Sir St. Audrin carefully. As I am sure you are aware, we are ourselves men of principle, and nothing, sir, nothing underhand, sir, is proposed, the lawyer pursed his pale lips. Of course not, sir. My client proposes to underwrite your entire expenses and to place only one condition upon your company. Sir, that my client have first choice of the ship's destination and purpose for the maiden voyage only. Thereafter, it is your affair where you sail her. St. Audrin, who had no intention whatsoever of completing the proposed ship, pretended to consider this carefully. Then he said, And we are not to know this destination and purpose. Not until you are ready to depart. A single voyage, and then the ship is wholly ours. Wholly. It's an attractive offer, sir. With an element of mystery and risk which whets my appetite, I must say. Yet, according to the vessel's destination, there will be things we shall have to know. The climate must be prepared, prepared for, and so on. My client understands. <coughs> my client understands as much. Now, gentlemen, do you wish to accept the commission, or shall we simply shake hands and go our separate ways? I'm tempted to accept, sir. But here's a problem for you. We are in the process of talks with investors interested in shares of the larger ship. Indeed, a prospectus is in preparation. Would it not be wiser for your client to wait until the prospectus is ready, 
to read it, to make suggestions even. There is a problem of shareholders already committed and so on. Money has already been spent in certain quarters. We can reach financial agreement, I am sure, easily enough. All my client wishes is that the first voyage be determined by them. Shall I tell my client that you are planning this new ship and that you'll send me a prospectus as soon as you have one? If you would, sir. And where are you lodging, sir? Lawyer Hohenheim Plessner made a note of our address. I shall hence send the message as soon as possible. Perfection, sir, said St. Audrin. Much obliged. I, I hope we shall meet again, sir, said I. Hohenheim Plessner paused as he made to rise from his desk. He seemed a trifle embarrassed. Uh, excuse me, sir, but the name von Beck's more than familiar to me. The Becks I know are from across the border in Saxony. I had the honour to represent Graf Rückert von Beck in a business matter some years ago. My grandfather, sir. Hohenheim Plessner was suddenly ten times more affable, which was to say that a fraction of him relaxed. He was as close as he could be to enthusiasm. Now my hand was shaken, almost warmly, amid the doctor-lawyer's murmuring courtesies. I was highly impressed once again by St. Audrin's judgment. The family name was worth cash after all. I told my client that I thought you were Saxon von Beck. I foresee very few difficulties, my dear sir. The lawyer's offices vacated, we walked up the Vleskstrasse in the cold air of imminent snow as cloud formed from the east. St. Audrin was cheerful. All necessary business had been accomplished in the matter of smithery and joinery, and he was optimistic about attracting wealth from all quarters. Hohenheim Plessner, a most cautious old gaffer, is won over, that's obvious. If we can impress a man like him, the rest of our task will all be oil and Billy Griffin. He had a tendency to use the obscure catchphrases of Glasgow and Newgate when ebullient. Mm, but I was suffering qualms. My family name was a trust. One day I would be head of our clan. Beck and honesty have been synonymous for generations. I was involved, I feared, in too many lies already. Yet, why should a name alone have meaning? Better to betray it, I insisted to myself, and show the world how innocent and foolish it could be. I had learned, after all, to trust neither religion nor politics, and to put my faith in the realities of metal, wood, and steam, in practical engineering, whose rules could neither be changed nor made to the subject of morality. So why should I show reverence for mere antiquity? These fears were, to a degree, put to rest by St. Audrin's insistence that he take me to a large chop house near the Mladota Bridge, from where we could watch the hurly-burly of the city. The bridge was crowded with horses, oxen, tumbrils, carriages, cabs, diligences, donkey carts, and all manner of men and women from every walk of life. Dem near as crowded outside as in, said I. We were jostled by waiters as they danced between the tables with smoking trays of Kalbshaxer and Eispine, and a variety of cutlets, half-cabbages, bowls of potato soup, and hunks of black bread. St. Audrin was familiar with the place, and soon had service for us. We toasted our future in strong Muirenberg stout, and after downing one full stein, I remarked upon my uncertainties regarding one of use of my family's name.
St. Audrin was dismissive, dabbing delicately at his mouth with his sleeve and leaning over the table toward me. Wealth's always a fair substitute for virtue, Von Beck. I mentioned your name to an acquaintance this very morning, a clever old fellow called Protz, who's dabbled in supernatural studies but earns his livelihood by producing lineage charts for the Nouveau Riche. He says your family's reputed not merely to have sought the Holy Grail, but to be its hereditary guardians. <laughs> what? The Becks are Fisher Kings? I laughed heartily and spontaneously. We've no connection to that myth at all. Half my ancestors were this side of being atheists, and the other half were practical Lutherans. We have a tradition of intellectual rather than religious inquiry. Why, there's more evidence of us being devil worshippers than grail keepers. Well, it's generally thought that your ancestors came from, or were intimately acquainted with certain mysterious lands bordering on our own, yet invisible to most of us. The Middle Marches, some call them. Poitz says that there are 50 accounts in his reading alone which suggest that the Von Becks were more than a little familiar with supernatural beings. Well, I was uncomfortable with this. The old romances attached any name to their tales, as you must know, St. Audrin. Doubtless by chance a Von Beck appeared in one of those, and from that beginning. Well, the romancier did the rest, eh? If you were to believe all the old degenerate German legends, there's a grail in every castle, a Charlemagne or an Arthur under every mound. There's not a noble house without at least one werewolf offspring, or a younger son who's made a pact with the devil, an uncle practicing the profane arts of alchemy, a vampirical grandfather, a mad monk, a ruined abbey in the grounds where witches meet, an incarcerated lunatic or heiress or both, an infanticide or two and a patricide, and of course a family ghost. I grew up with such stuff, though my own father always dismissed it. St. Audrin, I'd be happy enough to see the end of all such superstitial, superstitious gibble-gabble in Germany. It's the bane of reformers, even if it's presently fashionable amongst young romantics who celebrate the Teutonic past, thanks, I suppose, to the reborn popularity of Fortunatus and Nibelungenzaga. The extravagances of Goethe, Schiller, and all the other Stürmers and Drangers who followed him, now seeking out occult experiences. Not only do I lack interest in such things, my dear sir, I possess a positive instinct for reason, a distaste for myth, legend, and the German reverence for antiquity. I am old-fashioned enough to be a supporter of Nikolai in literary matters. But this fascination for mouldering tapestries and rotting tombs is one of the chief reasons for my leaving Saxony in the first place, and Saxony is far more enlightened than many other places. St. Audrin was disappointed by my scepticism. You sound like a canting Methodist, he said, and sniffed. There's no harm in a little fancy, surely, to give colour to dull lives. Your family legends are famous enough in Muirenberg to be of considerable use to us. My maps shall now be partly taken from your ancestral collection. To certain people, and this city's full of those young aristocrats you so despise, ever ready to join some new coven or discover a receipt for the elixir of life, they'll be of the greatest importance, and a touch or two of romance in our scheme will mean the sale of many more shares. I sat back as my meat arrived. I was silent. 
A great cloud of melancholy engulfed me suddenly, and I stared out at the bridge, wondering how I could have strayed so far from the course I set for myself when I put Castle Beck behind me and rode east. My radicalism in those days had not been sophisticated. It had been little more than a faith in reason, a belief in somewhat abstract notions of justice and an honest understanding that, by appeal and some small demonstration, everyone could be made to realise how self-interest was synonymous with irrational altruism. My experience of Catherine's court, where many men of intellect gathered to debate these very issues, had served more to baffle than to illuminate, and my two years with the Tartars had given me little opportunity for philosophical inquiry. It had been in America I had begun to develop my sense of the complexities which go to organise the modern state, and in France I had attempted to balance those complexities in a practical experiment. At least, I thought glumly, my actions and words were then united. Now I was discovering I could be an accomplished liar when I chose. The understanding gave me no sense of pride. Moping again, Von Beck, said St. Audrin. Is it that woman you told me about, the Cretan? She'll come chasing you when you're the toast of Muirenberg, as you sh soon shall be, at this rate. In his own way, I believe he honestly tried to ease my pain. He ordered more stout and encouraged me to eat as he babbled of his plans, the eminent people he hoped to attract to our scheme, the possible identity of our would-be backer. He asked for the draft prospectus I had made and poured over it while he un uncharacteristically consumed an entire beef pudding, nodding and exclaiming, You're a literary genius, Von Beck. This is excellent stuff. It has just the right ring to it. Have you written for publication before? I denied it, though. In truth, I was already the author of a handful of broadsheets, a couple of treatises against slavery in America, which I had hoped to abolish. But while Washington offered a patron's argument for the institution, I supposed it would be some years before the rights of man were judged to extend to those whose freedom was not of economical benefit to the nabobs and landowners who only a few years before had cried, Freedom for all! It now emerged they'd wanted freedom only to improve their profits and not pay English taxes. I had also written a volume of radical poetry, a verse romance, long since vanished in its only edition, and called Chicken or Poo, or The Pastoral Utopians, which had been suppressed in America. And of course I continued to keep my journal, since partially published as a memoir. I would never again be so foolish as to draw my sword or wield my pen in what proved to be a rich man's cause. As the friendly stout softened moral argument, I informed St. Audrin that I was tired of being deceived by others. For a change, I would be the deceiver. Thus I quelled my conscience, and maintained my progress as a capitalist. Soon, by this drawing forth of anger and attaching it to past resentments, I was able to grin suddenly at St. Audrin, give wild acquiescence to all his proposals, and, with horrid savagery, set upon my cooling chop. <laughs>